I think we're on target. Yeah. Somebody should photograph this whole thing. I know. We should actually <laughs> photograph it so we can remember how to do this. Because we usually have, like, friend Jay. Jay yeah. Braun, Braun, Braun. And Braun. he's not here today. So I was like, I think I remember how to do it. But I'm not going to blow the opportunity to be able to come to your studio and talk to you. So I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm coming here no matter. We'll figure it out. Bert said he... Uh, uh, wanted to record, so I was going to jump at the chance to talk with you. Well, you know, I put it off because uh, I guess it was about three months ago or maybe more yeah. that you first broached it. And I was, I just done an interview with a magazine and I felt talked out, mm-hmm. you know. So it takes time. The stimuli yeah. has come again from. What I was just talking about before, yeah, the disparity in what people experience at art today in the major museums that confers a kind of uh, a constancy about how they see the world. And what they're seeing now, and especially young people, is a simulation of what they've now grown up with, a moving image. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of post-contemporary, post-modern art is about is the very same thing. It's performance art. People moving around, doing fun things, man. (laughs) 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 Or someone sitting on their ass for four four days. And I wondered how she... uh, Abramovic is her name. Yeah, she's, oh, yeah. she's huge right now. I mean, yeah. she's, yeah, she's huge. She's while. managed to suppress her, her bladder so she doesn't pee. pee yeah. <laughs> Either that or she's got a bag that she's connected to we don't see. <laughs> Depends. And, and, and so what? Yeah. So what? It's the absence. It's Warhol in three dimension because he photographed somebody sleeping for 24 hours. Yeah. Made a movie of it. But it's, it's the epitome of the anti-art. It's poking fun at art. Ever since the toilet bowl, it's almost like it's art. irony, like the idea of irony becoming this like big important thing. Well, you have to understand what the context is in order to understand how something is ironic. If somebody doesn't have the thing that's being made uh, understood by irony, by its internal conflict by its dislocation from reality, then there's no irony. It's made up. It's a nice-sounding word confected by somebody like, for example, Peter Sheldahl, who writes for The New Yorker. I want to (laughs) strangle him. (laughs) Because he's a brilliant writer, and he writes in a a way that you, you come away from what he's reviewed with a sense of importance. But you just look at the image. Things in the modern art world is that there's something in it that somebody does, not the artist generally, but somebody else does, who's very talented at this one thing. And a lot of it is um, promotion. Somebody might be a very talented writer and be enabled, you know, a talented writer can convince you that this thing is very important. Well, they have a, a skin in the game. Of course, there's a lot of money in it. Not just that. 
but their career depends yeah. on art, which is virtually empty, which they can fill up with words. Or mm. unintelligible art that they can explain, whereas... It's not painting. unintelligible. It's very simple. For example, if you see a lot of three-dimensional things, it's the same design except in a sculptural form. It's the same arrangement of shape, and sometimes it's painted now, with the same kind of uh, understanding that it's stimulating one part of the brain, that one that's receptive to certain kinds of pleasure symptom. Hmm. And you see shapes that are somewhat uninteresting for whatever reason, who the fuck knows? But it varies from person to person. For example, there are half a dozen artists who do fairly interesting work, uh, including, uh, oh, what's her name? woman who does a lot of uh, uh, photorealist still life and so on. Uh, on the West Side? West Side, yeah. Uh, I don't even know any artists who live in Manhattan anymore. <laughs> We've <laughs> all been priced out. You're like the last of the Mohicans in that one. <laughs> There's another guy who's about my age, Sig- Sigmund Abelis, who's a, a graphic artist of some distinction. His paintings are even, but, it, but he's a very... I think a reasonable example of somebody whose work you can make photo posters and put them up in, in showcases yeah. for people to stop and sit because these are the artists in the community yeah. and that's what they do and that would be modestly interesting because people like to look at a picture of yeah. something even if it's momentarily yeah. they do not walk past an abstract structure with any degree of stopping and looking. They don't even notice. In fact, the thing looked like maybe a construction piece that was left behind. Yeah, well, that's what a lot of it looks like. Have you ever done any public art uh, commissions? No, no. Do you care to, or you just didn't have the opportunity to do that? It's it's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it. I think the closest they come to it is when I had a retrospective, a couple of three or four of them, where I had a sense of myself in a very complete kind of sequence. One was, oh, now going back 15, almost 16 years ago. And it went through three museums. It started out in Mormon country. Mormons love me for some reason. (laughs) I don't know, maybe they think I'm going to be convertible in death. No, I mean, the the realist painting, just it seems to resonate. Well, the school is devoted to it. Yeah, Amazing for (laughs) realists. And they had a terrific new museum, huge space. And if I were to think about it, it's probably the best exhibition I've had, just from the point of view how it's mounted. In other words, there was a painting here, and you went eight feet or ten feet, and you saw another painting, another ten feet. And each painting had its own space. It wasn't jammed together. Yes, yeah, so it wasn't put together each like, as an individual. You yeah. know, like these piled up. Like the salon yeah. style, yeah. which you can never see anything. Like yeah. Each painting should be able to breathe. And exactly. It's, well, you it's, paint it's a each painting art. on its own as its own. I mean, it's, I don't know, for me, it's, it's often months of sitting there contemplating, thinking, and... Uh, you know, every painting is a unique experience, and then if they get jumbled together, it kind of it kills It's a that. very important part of presentation. And when I saw it, I said, 
you know, I'm a pretty good painter after all. It, <laughs> it impressed me. When you see it all put together. And even in the studio setting. Yeah. People, for example, a, 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 a former, an, an old friend died, uh, David Levine, who's a caricaturist sure, yeah, and a watercolor painter and sure. a painter of some interest. I used to see paintings in his studio, and I, I loved them all. It was great. When he had a show and put them in the gallery, they were suddenly transformed. It was a curious thing. They looked much better than what I remembered them. Because of the presentation? The setting. The setting, everything. Everything. It brings you in there, opens your mind. But also, when you do a show, you never see all the paintings together. Because usually you'll finish one or two and you might have three or four of them in your studio, but you know one's out at the framers, one is at the gallery, one is somewhere else. When you see them all in one place, it does give you that awe of like, I did this? You well, it, it does become kind of reassuring yeah. in an environment that is anything but reassuring. That's a good point. <laughs> That's an excellent point. <laughs> Um, I mean, right now we're surrounded by your painting. This is, uh, we should mention, we're recording in Bert Silverman's studio. And it's, I mean, I, I, I can hardly keep my attention. I know. We're trying to keep <laughs> lock, lock eyes with you, but I keep on wanting to look either, either direction. The interesting thing is because you're dealing with things that I, that I have equivocal feelings about. And it's... I guess it's the rise of the most extraordinary kind of abilities, painting abilities, that didn't exist 35 years ago when I was proclaiming Jesus, you know, there's no, not a lot of good painters around and so on. Yeah. And the skill level has, has yeah. grown extraordinarily, exponentially. Yeah. It's led me to a kind of conflict because the degree of resolution has become so refined that I'm often, and this I hope is not offensive, I've often mm-hmm. shut off. Mm-hmm. I see something that's taken beyond a paint level, and then it doesn't have a painting sense. And it, like, you, your interest is lost in it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I, can, I get to the point of saying, oh, this is remarkably done, you know, and how exquisite it is. I can show you some things. There's a, a, a wonderful guy who does uh, still lives of various objects. Sometimes they're palettes, uh, or, or in fact, the last show he had <clears throat> on the cover was razor blades covered with paint, mm-hmm. like the ones you'd use to, to scrape. Your paint, yeah. And I have it on my tabletop, and I kept saying, geez, what are all these <laughs> blades doing? Because <laughs> <laughs> they were so realistic. <laughs> and you could see his, his uh, in, extraordinarily intense focus on object. Object, I've, the objectification of things in paint now are, for me, a very interesting kind of translation of what I was talking about before, the numb object in a lot, in most, all of modernist art. Mm. When nothing is being presented as a, a, an observation for you, except paint. It's a history of paintings of paint. So it's like it's it's art about the material. Yes, it's got a fancy word called formalism. Mm-hmm. All the things that are put together to make a, a two-dimensional image, and now separated from what they were intended to do, they are viewed in their 
entirety as solely the objects of stimulation, understanding, profundity, interest, and so on. Now, did you always feel like this from the beginning, or is it something that, uh, you know, with your experience, you came to these conclusions? It's a painting on the easel. I've done things of this on this subject before. And we're looking at it, we're looking at a nude. And a nude, but it's a nude of a stripper. Uh-huh. And in a context of all the exquisite renderings of female nude, mm-hmm. nothing happens for me except the kind of covert eroticism. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, why don't I paint what's really erotic? Mm-hmm. Okay? Someone who role is to stimulate mm-hmm. sexual desire mm-hmm. right. and try to make art out of that. Right. See, instead of putting the woman as object, make her as actor, as subject. Ah, okay. Do you think the old masters were because they did so many nudes? Do you think that they were able to they do that? They did it under all the same circumstances that attract a lot of artists because they're male and they like female forms and they love to paint it in order to own it. Yeah. When you paint it, you've had possession of that. It's almost a sexual experience, except no one really identified that because that's a little tricky. Yeah. But it really is, I'm talking from my own experience. Painting a nude is suddenly, see, it's desirable. I paint it, and now I own it, and then mm-hmm. the desire's gone until the next one. <laughs> and the next one, which parallels probably most human male experience. So instead of doing that, I said, I'm not going to act like some kind of sort Puritan type, you know, Protestant kind of thing. I'm not trying to eliminate sexuality. I decided to do a painting in the rear. I love people painting the backs of nudes, you know. Yeah. So I have it in a, in a coedal position mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that's what it's about. It's love in that sense where the body becomes desirable in the interaction. Well, it seems like there is, when you see a nude, a lot of times that, you know, sometimes the first thing you're going to think about is sexuality. So in a way, it it seems like you're just being really honest about it, but trying to make it beautiful and not Uh, pornographic. Trying to make something about it that relates to people's experience. And to living. In in living, in their best part of their experience. The best, yeah. Because making love is fucking... Yeah, and and you see, we we use the word to cloak it, but in its vulgar sense, it becomes unpleasant. It becomes, you know, crude. It becomes undesirable. And nudes have been a way of cloaking men's erotic desires, and they use other devices for it. For example, is there any reason why uh, people did the birth of Venus, except as a mythic excuse for painting? A beautiful nude. At the time. Yeah. yeah. They, they needed to make the excuse to make this nude because it, was, it, was, it wasn't right to... It's a to guy, Kenneth Clark, very well known. He oh, did yeah. a whole book about the nude, all yeah, the yeah. reasons why it was used as a muse and as a, a kind liberty leading the people of France. Why does she have her right tit exposed? <laughs> as... as was Samantha B made a joke about it too. She says, 
by and large, if you're going in a battle, you want to cover, cover up yeah. your boobs. <laughs> you don't want that exposed. <laughs> and she did it in the context of the whole thing with these burkinis mm -hmm. and women mm -hmm. exposing their bodies and so on. And it's the male mentality. All of it is kind of, you know, trying to exercise power and control. So uh, the other problem here for me is I've done these things before. But in doing this, I wanted to make it as highly realized as I could. And I couldn't go beyond a certain point. You mean technically? Technically, technically yeah. The finish yeah. or something. I mean, I can't do what uh, even Vincent Desiderio does or this younger artist David Casson does. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because he makes no reference to an art experience. He's trying to say, I'm replicating this human being, so that you could see that person in all its profound complexity and difference mm -hmm. and psychological experience. Now, there's something about withholding information that, for me, is very important. Or mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Preserving mystery. It, it's also because I, the Rembrandt experience, I guess, is a powerful one for my development. But it's the idea that paint was it's a, uh, a cognitive uh, kind of conflict to hold these two disparate ideas together, that you know it's paint, but it's also a human being, mm -hmm. very highly realized, very compelling because of the light, and so on. But you're always aware that the paint is doing it, except it's not important, mm -hmm. because the aesthetic experience you come away with is a feeling of life, of something happening that was living that you hadn't quite anticipated or understood before. And that's a curious phenomenon in paint that makes it important for me. And when I start finishing something, I get nervous. And it sounds insane, except this particular painting is still visible Again, as paint. The, 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 the uh, figure painting. Yeah, the strip. yeah. It, I, I, and you can see it, for example, in the beginning stage on a larger painting on the wall. It's yeah. a man in a, in a lake. Yeah, yeah. And why do I do that? Well, first of all, I was challenged by the idea, working from a photograph, but making it seem painterly and realizable uh, in, in very traditional paint terms. But it was also because something about a lone figure in a watery setting strikes something in me that's interesting, provocative, challenging in a way. It's like we are alone and we always, even though we're surrounded by community, that sense of ourselves is always at issue, how we function even within that community. And, and the challenges that happen because it's a young kid it's for me interesting. It's like, how do they deal with the world unknown? Because he's in a puddle of water. Not what in it. Yeah, and I mean, we don't live in water. In the but we came from water. water. And so the whole, the whole circle <laughs> becomes fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I'm saying is really, I make paintings as if I were writing about something without using words. And by 
writing about an experience that is both personal and I think generalizable, that it relates to everybody's experience. Right, it's universal. Universal in a way, I would almost say that's exaggerated, that's too much, but at least I know that a lot of people are experiencing the same thing. Right, or you can try, I mean, you can hope for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's certain works that <clears throat> well, seem that's, to be... Well, you know, that's the legacy idea, that somehow or other your paintings are going to last. Uh, and and it may be that, that it's a mistake, that it's a delusional one. But that's the basis in which I view technical abilities and facilities because something has to be not connected. You know, I use a, a kind of uh, almost an experience, a, a, a scientific one. When you put two anodes together, mm-hmm. okay, if you touch them, you don't see any spark. Right. Make a gap. You and you see a spark. Uh, okay. And that gap is between the finish and the unfinish. Mm-hmm. What's not left out, but what's not totally explained, articulated, or even what's suggested in the larger context of what's happening. So that somebody's begins to see an event in a slightly different way. It doesn't illuminate the world. It doesn't change it. That's a lot of, you know, self-indulgent horseshit. I I mean, I think it's a... We've often talked about the art and not putting certain things in is... I I know for me it's really difficult to do. Um, It's the abbreviation of things and still being able to tell such a full picture or a full experience is very difficult. I understand that desire, which I have myself, because I wouldn't be painting any of these images Mm -hmm. if I didn't have that sense of recreating the reality we all see in this funny, old, stupid way. (laughs) Mushing around dirt and oil. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of schmutz here, you know. (laughs) And I think that's, that's a remarkable thing for me that always existed about what's called older art. Meaning like you naturally had the ability to abbreviate like that or is it something that you worked on for well, a long time? Well, part of it was my indifference to detail. <laughs> <laughs> Your laziness. <laughs> because when I got to a certain point that I felt it said what it had to say, right. the idea of finishing it seemed wrong. I mean, there's some drawings on the wall. Yeah. <clears throat> Very early on, that drawing of the nude, by the way, I call my art school nude. It's done <clears throat> 1949 when I was 21 years old. Okay, but you see this. It almost al- has like an ang quality to it. Yes, yes, and that was one of the stimuli. Who's looking at ang drawings? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, and the drawing above it was done 20 years after, and it had a similar kind of linear interest, the idea that it was line-generated stimuli rather than tonal. Yeah, so the bottom one is a little bit more tonal, and the top one is more line. Well, they both both rely on some linear tonal description. But you can see the interest I have because it's all around the navel, see, in the nude. 
No, yeah. <laughs> because when you're 21, let me tell you something. There's no. I, Nothing's better. <laughs> the disguise is silly. You know, you gotta. Hey, can we um, actually, since you were talking about this, can we? Uh, I'd love to know a little bit about the history. You know, it's like if you look at kids, they all, they all, do, draw. They all draw and all paint. Some of them forget about it because they think it's silly. Right. Most of them. <laughs> Most of them. Yeah. But they all do it in the beginning. Yes. Why yes. do you think that is? Because art is pre-verbal. Yeah. They're expressing. They they're expressing feelings without verbal construct and without uh, any uh, cognitive sophistication. So making a line, I can see it all the time. I watch my grandchildren again, and I saw it with my kids in the sense that it's incredibly enriching on a very human level. And you re-experience your own children because suddenly you forgot, oh, that's what I did. And to see cognitive development is extraordinary. So as soon as words begin to become more important, that more, the less important. Yeah. Now, that didn't mean necessarily explain any of the reason why certain human beings have this need to, to, to continue do on yeah. with the making the mark. Absolutely. <laughs> Can't account for it. Except... Something did happen that was reinforcing. Okay, uh, parents were very adulatory. Oh, they looked oh, it's wonderful, and especially Jewish parents. If you didn't have musical abilities, if you did something <laughs> <laughs> that they could boast about, <laughs> that was a terrific thing. My Burton, he's drawing there, uh, and it's you know you can. You could boast to parents and uh, to other parents. Oh, my son is really... He's mm-hmm. a really talented Yeah, so he's a... Uh, and what changed was uh, uh, two things. Uh, an aunt who was... And this is just about the end of the, the Great Depression. She decided that she was going to give me the instruments to be an artist. So she brought me, when I was nine years old, a set of oil paints. Uh, and then it was heightened because a cousin, and this is unusual, family that was supportive in more than just, oh, you, you know, worried about you making a living kind of shit. Uh, uh, he brought me a book uh, of art history. It had, it had pictures of Northern European Flemish painting, 15th and 16th century. And I was blown away. Because there was a model of excellence. It wasn't Norman Rockwell, which is nice, right. or N.C. Wyeth, which I loved, but this was something different. And even in my very, very undeveloped mind, I suddenly saw something important that was possible. And it became embedded. Not I'm going to be an artist yet, but... That's, I just kept painting because I had in my mind something that was a kind of glorious possibility. Like a model out there for you to kind of reach yeah. for. Yeah, and it meant also aping it in a direct way. And all through my early development, my 20s up until I was mid-30s, I had other models of excellence. Yeah. Every artist does. Yeah. You know, I went through the whole of art history. 
virtually. Not only with the Flemish painters, but with the early German painters. Uh, and then I lucked <laughs> forward to Rembrandt and Velasquez and so on. And, and That's a biggie, Rembrandt and yeah. Velasquez. Oh, wait, that, That'll keep you for a while. <laughs> it was developing. Ah, you get to the point and say, okay, enough of that. Enough of this, remember? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I was. Well, I, I, I tried. I tried not to because I think it's deadly for an artist. First of all, you get too caught up in replicating the light and dark values, a light form on a dark ground, which has become now a crutch for a lot of art because it's a very dramatic kind of contrast. It really makes something. It's striking from. Yeah, yeah. Ribera and Caravaggio. Yeah, and they, and the artists, they do it. They did it with, with great... And right up through Sargent. You look at Sargent's paintings, they're all derived from the same mentality. Uh, and along the way, I stopped with the French, with Degas and Lautrec. I think Lautrec is in some ways more interesting to me now, in retrospect, than Degas. But... I mean, I got caught up with all kinds of things, including things that were dangerous from an art point of view. Like what? Da- dangerous, you Dangerous, said? yeah, like, like trying to paint ballet dancers. Oh. <laughs> Forbidden territory. No, it's a no-no. <laughs> you stay away from it. Yeah. And I kept saying, fuck that. I mean, why not? Why is there any subject matter? Yeah, you can it's do it. Really it's it's all, just, it just becomes because that that became famous, and then yeah. all of a sudden everybody's going to look at you as 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 stealing. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. And it's or not. say it's been done, or it's been done. Yeah. And then the other theme that was sort of tricky was <clears throat> uh, women ironing. Now I started out with paintings of my mother mm-hmm. at the ironing board. She, I mean, we're going back seventy years. You know when. We didn't have fancy ways of getting our clothes done. Yeah. That is, by having somebody else do it. Uh, and uh, there was something about the repetitive motion that allowed me to draw. Oh, yeah. When I was in Italy, there were a lot of these dry cleaners that were, <clears throat> where the doors were wide open, and the people did both hand uh, finishing as well as machine work. And there were these women doing the same thing that they did 150 Free years models. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> Only yeah. the arms moving. And the drawing downstairs. I did a couple of them. Senora, senora, por favor. What were you doing in Italy? Sono americano. Mi dispiace. Were you there studying? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I initially went uh, on you know, the great track that you're supposed to go yeah, on. Yeah, you have to. When I, for my honeymoon, I went on the grand tour and through all the museums, through, I mean, tons and tons of art. It's, it's both uh, a, a good introduction and it's a bad way because later on, I, I spent four months in Rome, also painting in the street, drawing, and there you could make very selective kinds of museums without having, you know, 17,000 people walking yeah. through. And the, the Palazzo Pitti, the Pitti oh, Palace Florence. across the river. Yeah, oh, yeah. Marvelous paintings by oh, the yeah. Bacchioli. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, still not too crowded. I mean, the Uffizi is empty hours. But, it's empty. Yeah. Because well, it's the still, tourist yeah. track is on the other side of the river. Yeah. And, and uh, I used to go to Pitti, like, you know, for 
wonderful kinds of inspiration. Yeah. But people don't look at the like the Macchioli. I mean, still, I think a lot of those museums are are pretty empty in the nineteenth century. Yes, yeah. yeah, and they continue to be here. I mean, that's a big issue. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, except for when it comes to art. And uh, <laughs> I noticed a lot of a preponderance of stories about how MoMA and the Whitney are doing so well fundraising and all the modern art sales at Christie's and Sotheby's. Contemporary art sales are through the roof and Old Master is flat or down and the Metropolitan can't raise money. Look, they're, they're easy targets. I started out by talking about it mostly because I, I just felt the disparity again, the way in which interesting art that is... that carries on a, dre- a realist tradition is totally out of the public awareness. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kept out of the public awareness. I know. Well, I, it's true and it's not true. It's true in the sense that curators look at it, they don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. They have no idea how to estimate it because for their training, all art started with Cezanne. Right. I don't know what's wrong with my... Uh, neural connections but I look at that and I see bad painting, bad color yeah. I mean I think a lot of people would agree with you I mean, whether it's art people in the arts or people on the street I mean, they're sort of the regular folk the non-artists, they would look at it and be you know, they'll say I don't get it and I, I think there's nothing wrong with that and what's, that. what's confounding is uh, I, I have People I know who, who paint in a fairly representational manner, mm-hmm. some of them very, who love Cezanne. Yeah. I think he's marvelous. Well, I'm reading this book about Monet, and Monet idolized Cezanne as the greatest draftsman. It's, it's confusing. But I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a very generous way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, my initial upbringing until... Uh, I'm at the point. I stopped going to museums about 20 years ago. I started going again recently to see selective shows. But I don't go look at any of the rock, except for an occasional uh, gallery show, which Mm -hmm. I'm interested in seeing. I don't really want to look at any of the rock. So when you were studying, when you you studied at the Art Students League, right? For a very short time. Short time. Where was your main education as far as... Metropolitan Museum. Wow! So you just go there and see it, and go look at the work, and then take try to figure out how it was done. You also had a community of artists Uh, who you were close. The guys I met in high school, yeah, which included Harvey, Dennis Dean, Mm -hmm. uh, and a painter named Dan Schwartz. I don't know if you know his stuff. He's a very interesting artist. And after this, I can show you some some of his things because they're a break from what I do, and they're very much like a halfway house to what's thought of as modernism, but mm-hmm. he's not. Uh, and uh, there were several other people, all of whom were supportive in a, in a way. We had a matrix. A Did part, you have to be supportive because there wasn't a because, lot of Because, well, the music and art high school was a Cezanne-esque school. Right, yeah. Their, their understanding of art started with Cezanne, Matisse, and those kinds of self-expression things. And I was constantly urged by the art teachers, you know, you can do that later. 
that whatever it is you do. That technique business. That, that drawing, drawing thing you do. <laughs> yeah. And try to do something where you feel something. And I kept saying, I didn't say it out loud. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I feel these things all the time. I get great pleasure out of being able to recreate the world. Did you ever second guess yourself? I mean, and I, I know I, I did. I think Tony and I both experienced a very similar thing, you know, in the seventies and eighties, and you know, particularly the eighties. And uh, you know, I think we both probably had to, you know, fight to kind of hold on to what we believed in the face of like an assault on it. It's very, very intimidating. Yeah. First of all, because when it's, you're a kid, and they use it's, words. Kids. it's like everything is like, oh, I, I don't know anything. There's this older person telling me something. They must be one an authority figure on yeah. top of it. Yeah. And the other thing is, it tends to annihilate your very apparent skills. Yeah. Saying they're not important. Right. They don't really mean anything in the in the larger context. I mean, you can do that on the side if it gives you any kind of pleasure. But to be a real artist. You have to figure out how you fit in to the canon of modernism. Right, right. Because that's the only relevant thing. Find your place. So did it ever... Uh, no, you just, no. It, you I, dug your heels As a matter of fact, I almost... Kind of, it's funny because in that little exchange I just mentioned, I got almost felt faint that somebody was trying to blot me out. Yeah. I said, that's who I am. That's, that's where I get all the the attention from yeah. all the kids in the neighborhood love my stuff you know my parents all the friends it's like what, are you, one. what are you trying to do you try to erase me yeah by making me do something that's indistinguishable from anybody else doing the same thing if you look at art without the names and without any kind of memory the art that's produced in 50 years is all the same indistinguishable art it, it's it's funny that I've, I've said something similar when you'd go to the art fairs and everything, and you'd go and there would be tens of thousands of pieces of art in these huge tents that they erect for these moments. And the thing, when I leave, I always come to the same conclusion. I'm like, it's all the same. Like mm-hmm. the idea that you'd go there to see something different and innovative and super modern, and I'm like, it's... I, I'm left with this. It's exactly the same stuff to me. It's scary. The other part of the coin is equally problematic for me because I touched on it before. Is for representational realism or whatever we call realism mm-hmm. not to become a slave to the past. It's one thing to write a novel using English and using drama and so on. But if you write it like Hawthorne, Shakespeare, or or Melville, yeah, yeah, it's silly. People will know that's ridiculous. What are you doing? Maybe the efficiency of communication wouldn't be quite as good. That's part of it. But something, I mean, uh, Hemingway came along and changed the vernacular. You know, instead of having complex Italianate <laughs> kinds of contingent clauses, you'd have brief kinds of explosive that fit that whole period of time where everything was changing. Mm. 
where the Picassos were emerging, where all the yeah. innovate, innovative art, the art of, of energy and change and throwing over the old regimes and all of the old values, which were suspect now because World War I killed it all. First of all, it was a devastating war. Yes. killed the whole populations in a way that was extraordinary. First of all, because the, the way it mangled bodies... That could never be repaired. Mm. But they mangled them in a, in a new way that was never done that, prior that to That too, that too, the mass kind of slaughter. And the whole waves of, you know, the, the charging out of the trenches. The trench warfare. Awful, awful. So that was the stimulus for what would be a change in any culture, in every, any environment. People need new avenues of expression. And something else. The laws of patronage was the key to it. Yeah. The French painting of the turn of the century was the expression of art that was searching for new sponsors. They had to invent their own raison d'etre. Yeah. Because prior to that, and even it still exists now because portraiture is still available. I mean, I do commission portraits. Mm -hmm. That silly old thing <laughs> that's still surviving with all this... Uh, electronic, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's extraordinary that that still elicits attention and, and preservation mm -hmm. from people. Something instinctive in the institutions that commission portraits understand its durability. If they're going to celebrate somebody, it's going to last longer than the selfies and all of the other. Well, yeah. a lot of it is about yeah. tradition, too. Those are often very traditional, like, clubs or uh, institutions that are commissioning. Those. The other part of it, I mean, as soon as the church saw that it was no longer possible to reinvent the crucifixion, died out, along with religious fervors and all kinds of other things related to it, uh, and the churches had less and less of a role to play in civil society, uh, had few controls. They would. They didn't. I mean, 15th, 16th century, the church ran the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was one part of it, and then the kings disappeared. You know, you couldn't paint a battle scene anymore. Those great murals in the entryway to the to the metropolitan. Yeah. I mean, they're all, you yeah. know, excessive kinds of illustrations of how great kings were. So illustrating that part of the culture was disappearing manifestly. When Degas decided not to do history painting, he understood how it was no longer relevant for him. First of all, for the audience he had and for him as an artist. And when they started going into the bordellos and the dance halls and everything else, it was the beginning of a search for meanings within a cultural life that was, uh, <clears throat> that was not run by a religious understanding. So kind of searching out what it was really out there. I know that the movement right at the tail end of that was like the naturalists, and they yes. were really trying to see what their paintings also like. attempted to do something which was to to create the grandeur of of the world that was neglected. Yeah. Okay, so the paintings became huge. I mean, they're marvelous. Yeah, they're heroic scale to yeah. show like, oh, yeah. this is yeah. what it's like. And, it, and it, was, it was engrossing. And it was worldwide. It stretched from Russia 
across the European continent yeah. to the U.S. People here were doing it that understood something about the fact that it was more interesting than other models, other subject matter. And so since then, artists have had to reinvent that reason for making paintings aside from personal need. Mm -hmm. The conjunction of that need, my infantile desire to make a picture, found an audience in a magazine world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? And not only that, I found a sponsor. People said, Burton, do that for me. You know? And suddenly you felt a part of the world that you don't experience when you're in the studio, hoping the world comes into that studio. You mean getting your work out? It, being as an illustrator. Yeah. Which was much despised, but if you look back at the art history, it was all illustration. Right. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot, of, it was hired. It was, it's, it's a relatively Well, modern. it was illustration for the church or, yes, right, yes. or for the king or and for the doge. And even the art that everybody looks down on, you know, so-called Western art, yeah. has a very powerful support. The people who buy it, the people who buy it, spent $340,000 for painting of Indians because they want to perpetuate that myth about the West, the West in its glorious historical sense. Thomas Aikens went out West and did about four or five cowboy paintings that are the most interesting. But he did a couple of cowboy horsemen on a mesa overlooking a, a landscape. A lot of them were not with the same kind of pizzazz and colorist qualities and so on <coughs> that have since been done by artists of, of, of probably a happier temperament. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought once it would be interesting if, if I was younger to go out west and paint the cowboys as they really are. They're the, they're the uh, uh, rural proletariat. Yeah. You mean like mo modern, modern cowboys? Contemporary modern, cowboys. Modern, modern cowboys, like Under, underpaid living, very, yes, yes, and really paid their life, not the glorious, you know, Marlboro kind of mm -hmm. stupid thing. No, but what, it, these are working class people. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same sensibility that motivated the naturalists that you mentioned. Sure. Or yeah. repping to go paint the Volga barge haulers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Quick, um, when you were mentioning, you know, having patronage, do you think there is there a way that we can have a modern, like a modern Medici or somebody, some institution that would be supporting, you know, the idea of artists in their studio doing things at the highest level for not only historical purposes but for like society. Like, we need these. We need artists in their studio doing the greatness of things. There are a lot of divergent uh, uh, sensibilities out there that uh, are hard to put together in, in one uh, sponsoring agent, someone yeah. who, would, who would coalesce around the simple idea that you're talking about. For yeah, example, of course, I'm simplifying, but the idea of, like, is there something? That our society can do. You know, the Newington Cropsey Foundation yeah. mm -hmm. is built on a very... Yeah, well, it's built on a you know a religious idea that art has a civic role and is socially uplifting, and it works with the idea that beauty 
is a, 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 a necessary element for civilization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, money it. is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I'd be slightly smart ass, and I don't. Mm. But beauty comes out of something else that is not part of the, the aesthetic that, uh, that's been generated by that particular point of view. It's based on, by the way, uh, Jasper Crosby, Cropsey, who is not as interesting a painter as, uh, say, uh, the other guys. Church. Church, yeah. Yeah. That whole, yeah. Thank you for the... <laughs> <laughs> they all live in the, the same area. <laughs> Yeah, well, all of that, who did more interesting works, I think they were more capable. But uh, uh, Jim Cooper is going to be upset if he hears about this. Uh, And I I think they were also, you know, the kind of retrieval of the academic tradition that Jay Collins represents. Yeah. And that's part of the the Florence Academy as well. Yeah. Now, there's... Two very talented artists now who are running Florence Academy in Jersey. Jersey. Uh, yes. Jordan Sokol and Amaya Gerbide. Yes, and they're, they're extraordinarily gifted. Yes. Yeah. I said something else has to happen with your art, and you're going to come to awareness of it, that the simple figure of space, you know, with the wonderful lighting and so on, has a, to run its course. And that's my... It's not a complaint, but a concern about what you're talking about, about an art that has so many variants in it, an art idea, the idea of representing the human form mm-hmm. that needs to get past all of its things that are not only ordinary, but retrogressive. There are tons, tons Bad painting out there, all under the aegis of realism, that yeah. somehow or other that constitutes its immediate authenticity. And a lot of it is nicely done, but tedious, uninteresting. Some of it is bad genre painting, with with the cloyingest kind of narrative attached to it. Yeah. Uh, I could be accused of painting genre without without question. I mean, I, I understand as soon as I start to paint guy in the water or people in the water are making a story about something people have seen, understood and not. But I I'm viewing it from a different vantage. That is that it, I'm trying to re-see it. Not at its, at its everyday event status, but it's something that elicits some sense of, of concern or anxiety or, or something that ticks off differently, and I can't explain it mm-hmm. thoroughly. I can only trust what I think is my own instincts, and some of them are not so great. <laughs> they really are. I mean, it's what I talked about when we first met, about being very careful now about all the things I paint. Yeah, I you were mentioning it. that you were being a lot more careful with your paintings than you were in the past, yeah. and you're explaining, if I'm, you don't mind explaining why. Well, I'm tiptoeing around, am I really doing something that furthers what I am and what I've done in the past, that somehow or other is, and that's a very tricky word, is better. Is it better from a technical point of view? Yeah, I'm more skillful. Mm-hmm. 
just that as a matter of practice. If you work at it for 50 or 60 years, you, you figure, you, you yeah. you figure, you'll figure out a couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> you understand thoroughly. <laughs> but it's, it's about, I'm, I, as I'm talking about it, I'm getting even more concerned, you know, because I'm not sure of myself. The more I know, the less I know. Yeah. And certainly it comes with old age, too. I, I hate to say I'm old because that's in defiance of the American desire to stay healthy until the very moment <laughs> yeah. when you croak. <laughs> that yeah. you're going to be on the treadmill yeah. until I, you know. But that's, I mean, I actually think that's really encouraging to think that, you know, the, you know, the great Bert Silverman is unsure of himself. In a way, I think that's actually inspiring because I know that there's always going to be something to figure out. Like, I know that in my heart, you know, we all kind of know the idea of that, but I know that even as I mature, there's always going to be a lot more to do, and there's, that road is never going to end. That's and what's I, exciting about that's it. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's very inspiring to hear that from you. Well, I hope I hope it's, it reaches people. I think in the dark of night, you know, when, <laughs> when no one's around, most artists do feel that way. People, oh, yeah. good, good artists. You know, you, you question... That last painting was that really what I wanted to say was can I maybe I maybe I shouldn't let it out maybe it's not not right. I constantly th- feel like I'm a fraud. <laughs> when I was doing a lecture at the Portrait Society, I was going through all of the different ways in which portrait painting, painting of people, had evolved. All the very talented things have happened, and I arrived at a. a a handful of paintings that suddenly led me to a kind of insight that there was an urge that people had to want to get at the what I called the itness of things. That it was so concrete, so unchangeable, and so verifiable, and so certain that it had a kind of beauty in just that recreation of its essential existential itness. And I saw it in, in some of the things that, that Steve Vassell was doing. Uh, and uh, uh, Tony Ryder, you know the artist? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. In fact, he stumbled in halfway, or three-quarters of the way through my, my lecture. And he said, how did you know that when I talked about this? Very idea, because that's what is in his head. That's what he's striving for. And I think that's a, uh, without making judgment about it, I think it's an avenue that's an important one, and it's an important part of our realist experience in art. But I still find it wanting in some way. And it's what I talked about before, which is a personal sensibility. It's about the feeling of pain and something unexplained and not quite realized and so on. And the interesting thing is a lot of what is this very highly realized art form, you think about it, you came of age in a time when everything was ambiguous. Everything was unexplained. What is that? mean that painting mean I don't understand it yeah. and somebody was telling you you fool you, <laughs> you will understand it <laughs> something else happened 
with the audience for art because there's a lot of realist art, a lot of bad painting, unfortunately, being sold. But it's satisfying a great conservative drift in, a, in, a, in the world, in American life. Politically, you mean? Politically yeah. is the wrong word for it. It's not just, it's cultural as well as political. Right. It's people are tired of uncertainty. Yeah. Hmm. You know, the, the world is changing too fast. It's getting flatter. It's, that too. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that matter up. <laughs> I was going to speak to it later on. But <laughs> it, and, and, and art, certainly non-object modernist art, exacerbated that feeling. Even though a lot of very smart, wealthy people saw in it something else. And I'm going to political cast on it. I remember thinking way back when a lot of the, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the large-scale modernist paintings were selling into big collections, corporate collections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized this is the perfect art for the corporate mentality. <laughs> yeah. Why? If you put a picture on the wall that's engrossing, people stop and look at it, they talk about it, they're not being productive. Yeah, they're not. They're not making money for you. But if you did a, pa- a painting that the, the eyes of this portrait or something are just, you just want to know this person. It's like, it's taking. It's in your soul now. Like you're not working. You're staring at the painting. And not only about that, other things. it might even underscore the sense that you have of not being in a human environment. Yeah, I never thought of that. I mean, I think I've felt that, but never. Like, that's 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 very. With that, I'm not putting a Marxist thing on it. No. I think it's a very much. I think in the soul of every corporate executive, he understood that paintings that didn't have a story to tell and that decorated his wall were much more enlivening. People felt good. They saw a lot of colors, and they marched back and forth around those very enlivened spaces. And it was a perfect art for that. Hmm. We don't have to commit to anything either. That part of it, yeah. It's complicated. I made very simplistic ideas, probably totally wrong, but that was my feeling. It infiltrated into domestic spaces. You see a lot of rich people with totally soulless modern furniture, and they have huge not objective things on the wall. Mm-hmm. Color splashes. Because it enlivens all this gray yeah. environment. You look at very wealthy environments. They don't have all this crazy decoration around it. Very simple uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Productivist, austere forms. Chairs that seem... Minimalist. Minimalist, yeah. exactly, Yes. And the colors are usually gray and white yeah. or offbeats of that. So they put that thing on the wall. Yeah. That really makes you feel good when you get yeah, into yeah. the room. <laughs> Did you at any point when you, um, you know, back in the, the, the 50s and the 60s when you, when abstract expressionism came around, were you resentful of it or did you just not It was intimidating. It? It, was. it was, yeah. On, in scale, partly because... Quite frankly, in the very the 60s and 70s, we were producing a lot of things that were 
marvelous, nice. I mean, you could see little paintings on the wall, you know, intimate stuff. It didn't have that public stature, yeah. that sense of being part of the world in yeah. a very dramatic, important, powerful way. And and that's what, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of, uh, of, of, of at least half a dozen wonderful examples of that. Uh, and they all had reference to something else that was political. It was American art was reinventing the whole art thing. Cezanne is nice, but small-scale museum, and it's good for artists to think about. But what you want about art that operates on a public-slash-political level, yeah. those big non-object paintings were terrific. First of all, it was transcultural. No one needed to know... You didn't, know, you didn't need to know history. You didn't need to know what it referred to. Like superhero movies. Yeah, exactly. It's the American painterly version of the comics, and it worked perfectly. Do you know... I'm talking about conspiracy, but it's verified. The CIA supported yeah. a lot of uh, uh, exhibitions of the, of the abstract expressionists. Because it represented, yeah, yeah. Because it was a propaganda thing. See, America was different. We was young. We were we, we were, were free, we and were you could free splatter and, paint if yeah, you want and to. And you could, yes, it represented freedom compared to the Soviet monolithic realist, right, this was in the Cold War. Yeah. socialist realist art. But there was a fair amount of abstract, a lot of abstract expressionism going on in the in the, so, in the communist Soviet Union too. Maybe a little bit more underground. Subterranean. I think that was under, yeah. It made the was a lot of all it. of the propaganda, that Soviet propaganda, art look kind of clumsy and. Well, it was partly that. I I went to the Soviet Union in 1967. Wow. Uh, it was. It's a fascinating story. It's a side issue. It has nothing to do with art. There's a couple of paintings on the wall of a guy at a desk. He <clears throat> was a fat fact was inadvertently my being thrust into the narrative of uh, post-war, Cold War politics. He was a Soviet spy. He was a good friend. He occupied a studio next to mine in a, in a building in Brooklyn. He was uh, like a wannabe painter, terrible artist, but, <laughs> but a, a wonderful musician. I used to listen to him play, come and play the guitar for me. Uh, we became very close friends. I think it was, uh, at a time, I, it was a very fatherly kind of guy. I had lost my father recently, and I wouldn't have been connected to someone who was virtually twice my age. Yeah, yeah. My, I'm in my 20s, he's in his 50s. And, uh, 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 you know, an interesting man in many, many different ways. Just happened to turn out he was working for the Soviets. <laughs> so, <laughs> not my fault. <laughs> the reason for the trip to the Soviet Union was I met somebody who wanted to write about the whole story. And it um, became, as a matter of fact, a weird thread in my life. I was interviewed by people in the BBC making documentaries about spies. I was asked to be, I inspired somebody who wrote a whole biography of this guy and his father. Hey, I got this crazy Hollywood little <laughs> intersect in my life. That, 
you know, they make a movie about. I think you know, I, just whole, coincidentally. Yeah, I think this, I think people are starting to figure out who that person was at this point. <laughs> <laughs> was it recent Academy Award winning? Yeah, it was the Stranger on the Bridge. Yes. Yeah. All right. And wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So the paintings, as a matter of fact, uh, that I did. Uh, there's another larger one version of these, uh, because he was an interesting guy. You know, somebody. Who I was, who I knew, I was friendly with. Uh, they wound up at an exhibition in East Germany of spies in East Germany since World War II. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, you know, I mean, bizarre. <laughs> but and, the experience alone would be just, I, I gotta check this out. You know, the <laughs> idea of being twenty-something years old and being like. Yeah, I don't know, but I need to just at least see what this is about because this is a crazy story that I'm going to tell people in the future. <laughs> well, it, it was again. Uh, it becomes intriguing for for me for personal reasons because I was once challenged by some guy who was doing this BBC series on uh, spies who embedded themselves and. and in countries and, you know, information gatherers of all kinds. Uh, he said, uh, don't you feel he betrayed you? I mean, this is a man who sat in a room next to which there were people screaming in torture. So I, I felt a little pissed. I said, I don't know if that's true. Maybe he was capable of being indifferent to torture. I don't know. And you don't know anything about it. But I feel betrayed by my flag, my American flag, which is, and this is at a time when we were still involved with all the countries in South America, making sure that they weren't socialists. I feel betrayed when, when they, well, we help people get being tortured in Nicaragua and Guatemala, and when Henry Kissinger is ranging for death squads, I feel my flag is being betrayed. The flag I believe in as the America I'd like it to be. You have strong political views, but do you you feel that that has an outlet in your art? No. It's separate, it's divided. I think the sensibility that leaves me to be leftist or left-wing or something uh, is part of the, the things I do, but it's not programmatic. Mm-hmm. I'm not a social realist. Right. And I, in fact, I, I, I don't like the title. I mean, we'd be set by the need to <clears throat> identify, <laughs> product identification. What, yeah. what do you do? What is, you, what is your product? What do you produce? You're a, an adult human being. What do you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you make? I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> and it, it enables people to make shortcuts and estimations of things mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. So I've drifted away from the other part of my concern, which is not about the modernist triumphs, but about possibly the realist failures, things that need to have happen. All of us are working in unknown turf. There's no validation for it. There's no thing you mentioned about a a patronage that understands what's happening and begins to promote it. 
provide opportunity for it to exist, provide public spaces for it. Hmm. And that's a, that's a difficult issue. And I think because too much of what is vested in just the idea that you can reproduce something that looks so much like what we observe is tough terrain. But I don't. I also don't think it's seeming. It seems like it's not. That's not good enough anymore. That there's there has to be more to the the equation. You know, you're up against. When, if you're looking at it in competitive terms, you're up against the whole body of work that's insulated by, you may think it's nonsense, but tons of things written about it, substantiated, validated, give it an art context, a historical relevance, a continuity. It's part of the is of this world. It's what it is. And so something to supplant that is has got to be provocative. And I think there are elements of it that exist out there. That, for example, as much as I may say, seem like I'm putting down heightened representational or photographic painting, I'm not. As long as it hits on a nerve, as long as it begins to say something about, look, mom, dancing then that to me is is, is sufficient. Mm-hmm. Sufficient to say there's a, a place for it to go forward. Mm. Could I could I uh, backtrack a second? Because I know we were talking about something that you were a part of, an historical event. If uh, You were part of another historical event in 1965. Weren't you at the Montgomery... Marches down in Selma. Fifty six. Fifty six. What did I say? Sixty five. Uh, yeah, I meant it. Yeah, totally. Nineteen fifty six. Were you? Yeah. I heard. Am I right? Yeah. You were there. Yeah. And you were drawing. Yep. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Because it's such an important event. Briefly, it was almost an accident. Uh, Harvey Dinsey's lifelong friend. I was talking about something. Irrelevant, and Montgomery was being written about the bus boycott. That is, was being written about by Murray Kempton, uh, a brilliant writer, a very kind of uh, uh, elegant, uh, uh, almost uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost elitist personality. He came from a, a very well-to-do background, but he was very much in the mix of how people worked and lived and he went down there and he wrote about the events that were taking place including in the legislature which was the capital of Montgomery yeah. and he wrote about these group of, of legislators who looked like disheveled used car salesmen <laughs> you know okay it's a northerner damn Yankee <laughs> writing about it. but it was the only thing that was being written about. It was like almost buried. And the fact that it was the almost unique in the sense that it was the first mass protest by African Americans against what everybody knew was a system of oppression, Jim Crow. Right. Jim Crow laws, yeah. yeah. The whole city was not riding the buses. 
Uh, and you've got to understand also, this is like the still the period of McCarthyism in America, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when all kinds of dissent was regarded as suspicious, dangerous to our well-being and so on. Same thing's happening now. Same thing. Uh, it's astonishing how you can get things written in the 50s and 60s that can be printed today that explain many of the things that are happening, many of the discontents. All of the changes that have happened still need the same kinds of remedy. Mm. But in any case, we're talking about something and very briefly. Harvey said out of the blue, he said, have you been reading Kempton? And I said, yeah, yeah, terrific. He said, let's go there. And I stopped for a minute, about a millisecond, and I said, sure, let's go. And it was so unbelievably stupid. We were going into an environment we knew nothing about. We knew, in fact, later learned that there was a lot of of, of potential real danger that was not being written about. There were organizations that were threatened in Montgomery that were civil rights organizations. There was violence incipient that was not being reported. So we so two Jews from New York are going down there. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is a shock. And yet we went with a kind of youthful indifference, mm. if that's the right word. Were you there was something to- very important about it for two reasons. First of all, from a sociopolitical point of view, and secondarily from an art point of view. Because here we could take a role in talking about what the world was like. Because there were no photographs. There were no photographers there. There wasn't the internet to tell you exactly what was going on play no, by play. No, And we would be instruments unlike any others in recording an event that had potentially extraordinary. We didn't even know how important it was. Yeah, I was going to say, did you know, did you think it was going to be a historical event? No. We only knew that it was inspiring, it was exciting, it was a way to challenge us both as individuals and as artists to be able to draw. First of all, we're art school trained. You know, you have a nice model and you spend yeah, all your time move. doing it. <sighs> Suddenly in the midst of a dynamism that has to be recorded and tests your observational skills, your choice of what to record. Your memory. All of that. Uh, I remember the the intersection of the actual moment and the art for me was uh, there was a, a series of, of protests that were held in the in the black churches. They were called uh, pep talks, where the people, where various leaders in the community, got up to talk, and inspire people to continue to struggle and so on. And there was a lot of music and time, a lot of gospel music or yeah. and I'm sitting in one of the pews we got invited in and the music starts to take hold and I'm drawing and the drawings are part of the music and I'm part of the experience it was a fascinating moment did they, did they, when you were sitting there drawing like you were saying you were invited in were you invited in just because you were there or were there like people we, like hey there are artists down here drawing yeah, this yeah, that's pretty we, cool look it's a small town yeah 
and pretty soon people said, oh, who are these guys? And, you know, and we introduced ourselves. We wound up being invited to people's homes to draw them in their home. It wasn't so much a dynamic of the demonstration itself, although there were drawings that were done that Harvey did and both of us did of the actual literal event of people walking past the bus or marching together. Harvey said something that he felt transformative qualities in the way people walked, that their walk was a, a kind of of physical expression of their protest, of mm. their mm. not wanting to take it anymore, just not walking in a group, but just how they began to walk in the streets. Mm-hmm. More steadfast, yeah. more like yeah. strong, bigger. Yeah, yeah. consider what was... I mean, Jim Crow knocked people down, yeah. Yeah. destroyed your sense of self. And this was an... an, 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 an that became almost a, a visual way of describing what the protest was. So he did several drawings of people walking in a certain manner mm-hmm. that was manifestly not the black man, subservient, you know, yeah. instrument man. Do you feel like you were, at that point, skill-wise, that you were able to capture... Terrible drawings. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? But, like, like were you, like, uh, skill-level-wise, were you able to... Do you feel you were able to capture the vibe, the feeling, like yeah, things yeah. that we've been talking yeah. about in this discussion? As, as unresolved as sheer skill, you know, or draftsmanship mm-hmm. was, it did resonate with that. You got, like, yeah. some essence. And of... people uh, came through in the drawings, you know, mm-hmm. people's sensibility. They loved having us draw for them because that was paying attention to who they were. Right. Art was being made of them. We had, uh, the drawings were acquired, not all of them, about 50 of them uh, were acquired by the, the Delaware Art Museum. Mm-hmm. And the way they, would get, they got into the museum was the director of the museum was interested in illustration, American illustration, Pyle and, and uh, oh, Rockwell yeah. and so on. Sure. And we had a kind of illustration aura so he was very receptive to the work, and we suddenly in a museum collection that <laughs> ordinarily wouldn't happen. And they uh, had a memorial exhibition in uh, 2005 or 2006, 50 year celebration. And the thing was attended by tons of African Americans. The community in, in Wilmington is, is very heavily. African-American. He said, we had people coming into museums we'd never seen before because they saw something that celebrated their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, museums now say, oh, we have to get more tenants from those minority groups and women and so on. He said, how, how about making pictures of those people that they see as representative of themselves? Yeah. Not what the artist is, thinks he's talking about, but about their world. That doesn't go over very well. It was that moment, you know, of sudden inspiration. I don't think if we thought... Thought it through, you would... You would we would not. <laughs> Did you ever feel in danger when you were there? Either we were too stupid or we didn't, or we had enough support around <clears throat> the community. 
we were really incorporated into the protest in a way, so that we had somebody had our backs in a way. Mm, yeah. Uh, but there was I wandered into the state legislature. As a matter of fact, I figured Murray Kempton had all these <clears throat> kinds of interesting people. And it was the opening day of the Senate, and there was a very active uh, white supremacist organization called the Citizens Council, also that were <clears throat> monitoring the whole... Yeah, they must have loved you. <laughs> <laughs> and I went in and I started making, you know, little drawings, almost not quite caricature, but they weren't quite realistic. And there was somebody who was uh, apparently a bailiff or somebody in charge of the place, who I didn't realize was looking over my shoulder. Suddenly a hand reaches down and says, I'll take that now, son. (laughs) Look up, and there's this very unpleasant-looking man looking down at me. He said, you can't take that. I'm a reporter. He said, I know who you are. You're from New York City. Dog whistle. <laughs> You're a Jew from New York. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I said, okay, the better part of valor is to run away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, survival. At that point, it was just... <laughs> anyway, I stuck it out. And then the, I figured I, I still had some paper and materials to draw. And, I, and <clears throat> the whole thing turned into this celebration with all these little girls in pink dresses came. It was a big opening day of the Senate, mm. state Senate. And somebody knocks the gavel and said, Mr. President, I have some of these drawings here by this man from Burton Silverman from <laughs> New York City, and I want you to see this. This is a disparagement of the people of the Senate. I said, oh, shit. I started to look around like for the exit. <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, you know, I mean, probably I'd be really cautious enough or, or whatever. But notwithstanding, uh, there was a guy from Newsweek who was part of the press corps. Mm-hmm. And he came over to me and he said, just take your stuff and start leaving. It's okay. I said, well, I'll get my drawings back. He said, just leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do it now. <laughs> So that was my encounter. That was that's, only... That's a little sli- scary. Slightly, that's incredibly scary. Slightly dangerous. But yeah. at the same time, you were witnessing history. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. But you're down there to to do what you do. You're an artist. You were like, okay, I'll go down there and do protests. But I'm, my version of it is I'm going to go down there and record it and, and be a part of it as an artist. Exactly. Exactly. Now... I mentioned the fact that I thought it was a chance for us to be important as artists rather than Mm. protesters. Mm -hmm. It probably took on more importance in retrospect. You know, the museum had a big celebratory exposition and the whole thing had had more. What do you think is the future of, you know, realist art, kind of, you know, what we're doing? I'm not... At all, sure. I know it has a lot of support now. It seems like it's growing. It's getting, it's getting yeah. more. And, and uh, what's his name? Alan on Facebook. He's done a whole series of, of uh, uh, 
photographs of art. Calls it art was done while the world burned, you know, as a reference to the to the modernist experience. And he's reproduced an very incredible array of realist stuff, mm-hmm. things that are not seen ordinarily. He's fished out stuff from from Europe, from from uh, Eastern Europe, artists who who would have no visibility here. And I contemporary artists, yeah, like uh, yeah. Yeah, live people. <laughs> Living. Astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> All uh, this in Eastern yeah. Europe. And he, uh, he's included a very wide range of stuff. Uh, and, he, and, and I thought, holy mackerel, this could be, if somebody like your Medici's were able to think about a space to organize successive important exhibitions, but rent out the Met. Mm. You know, they're yeah. always looking for money. They put all kinds of crap up these days. <laughs> uh, that would be, an, you know, not just uh, a, an easy kind of uh, blockbuster show like a Sergeant or a Velasquez or something like that, but where something was happening that was trying to do the equivalent for our, car, yeah. for mm-hmm. our culture. And a lot of the things he's, he's assembled, some are, are rather uh, atypical of, of a very, of, of the way you or I work, but nevertheless within a, an umbrella of understanding of representationalism. And I thought, that's something that elicits the diversity that yet exists within a kind of generalized notion of representationalism. Your career has, has been amazing and you know, you've been able to survive as an artist and Tony and I are doing it. I mean, there are you know, we're not hanging in the mat, but we are surviving as painters. I mean we're selling what that's, we do and that's what I mean. There's a subterranean kind of patronage that's yeah. out there. That in defiance of what the elite culture seems to ask for. Right. And everybody knows the stuff is a joke. You know, they're playing into it. I mean, it's now marketable in a stock market sense, you know. Well, that's is, who's running is that Jeff, market. Is Jeff Coons up or down this week, you yeah. know? Can I can I buy a Coons or shall I wait till the dip? I used to hear stories of dealers who would do something interesting. They'd get somebody to buy a painting and give them a second painting. And then sell it on auction, or buy it. They put it up at auction. They buy it back. They buy it back at at an elevated price, along along with the second painting. They're doing that right now. That's a big thing that they do in the auction houses right now. That's how, without saying names, some of the prominent We need some of those people doing that for us. Some of the prominent artists, they're why they're the top-selling artists, is that their people, they buy it all back. My favorite, whose name I'm... <laughs> Starts with the letter. <laughs> Sounds like. <laughs> rhymes with. Oh, this is a disaster. <laughs> yes, I, there are times when I'm so lucid and clear, and I'm names them. And that, I don't know what this is the occasion. I'm not particularly anxious about it. Yeah. But. Um, at any rate, uh, he would get work that, uh, as an inspiration, yeah. 
to to write about. Of course, it was a gift, and so he'd write something highly extolling and and raise the price, interest yeah. and the price and all the, the new galleries that were opening up that <clears throat> were promoting it in Soho, the whole thing. Yeah, it's business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, you know, I talk about art criticism on that exotic, stupid level, but a lot of stuff is written about realist art that's also silly. <laughs> like you yeah. were saying, there's really bad realist art. And like, yep, I, I see plenty of it. But the good yeah. thing is that there's some really great stuff being done yeah. as well. I also wanted to thank you for doing what you've done because if it wasn't for you, um, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. You got, you know, people. I'm so, I'm really, that makes me feel the best about my art. Yeah. That really does. Like yeah. you were doing it when, at a very dark time for art and, um, you know, people like you and you very specifically because I, I saw your art when I was in college and I didn't know what I was looking for and I was an illustrator and that was great, but then I saw, you know, art like you were doing and I was like, oh, there's something different about that. It's fine art. It also inspired uh, uh, Jay Collins. Sure. Mm. Because he saw the drawings I was doing for New Yorker, the yeah. portraits. Yeah. And he said, there's somebody out there who can still draw. Yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> there were. I mean, you carried the torch yeah. through a really dark yeah. period. Yeah. So yeah. When, when, when you would read and find and find out you were doing that at, it at an era which it was, you know, very uncool and not a way to really make a living, you were doing it. And if it wasn't for you, I don't think a lot of people would be painting the way that we're painting right now. So I, I, thank, I thank you for that. I like to put it in an aphorism that my spy friend <laughs> <laughs> said to me once. He said, what one fool can do, another can. <laughs> thank you <laughs> this was amazing thank you for having us into your yeah your into studio. your incredible and, studio and it's just amazing to be around you know so much of your work it's just we're surrounded by your work and it's well, thank you thank yeah. you very much and uh, I'm very pleased to have met you both I I'm delighted because normally I'm the stick at home I really I don't get out i was looking forward to going down to the club because i figured okay you want <laughs> we can still go out we ordinarily yeah, record out but i was kind of giddy to get to come to your studio yeah. I've, I've been looking at your art and admiring it for years and it's inspired different by than it when and you see it in reproduction by it the sure way. is yeah. yeah this was suggested donation i was edward minoff and i am tony silverman <laughs> and we were talking to bert silverman and uh at and, Bert Silverman's studio. At Bert Silverman's studio in Manhattan. And it was and, an and, absolute thank, pleasure. And thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you, well, too. Thank you. <laughs>